uh, mm -hmm. many decision makers at many of these suppliers are bound to their traditional thinking as well. Like, hey, if I can get this big European OEMs business, I think I'll be set for long. But you have to see how that product will be will be performing in the market. You are putting these this fancy lines with automated solutions. You have like seven CNC machines set up, ready for ten thousand per week volume, but there's no demand. All your capex investment is gone. Like you will have to repurpose those machines, and if these are purpose-built machines, the, the money is just gone. So these decisions should be collectively made with like thorough understanding of the product, not just the, hey, it's a big OEM, they gave us the business, just invest it all. Like mm. study the product, the, the industry is changing. You know, these suppliers don't want to be the Nokia and Blackberry of the casting industry. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to the Gold Casting Podcast. Today we have a new episode that will be highly in demand for the foundry industry. We are going to talk to Branheim. He's working for Tesla. And as usual, we are not talking about technical details. Why don't you start with an introduction? Can you introduce yourself? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, hey, Gold Casting listeners. I'm Pranay Verma. I'm the part of supply industrialization engineering team here at Tesla. We are a global supply chain team, which is a part of Tesla's core technologies uh, group responsible for source sourcing castings and other commodities uh, across all our factories. I've been with Tesla for around six and a half years now. Prior to Tesla, I was working for Daimler Trucks North America. I've spent three years in Europe uh, working with amazing uh, and very organized European suppliers. Uh, and I think that's how I came across Fabian and Stefan and gold casting through that network of connections. So definitely excited about this and looking forward to this podcast. We're excited to have you here, but but let's let's make a little bit of a spoiler. We are not going to talk about mega castings, right? It's true. That's kind of part of it, and I'm, yeah, I'm pretty happy with yeah, that we're also. We're way past that. We're way past that. I think the technology has evolved so much. There's, there's yeah. so much to do. I mean, uh, who is interested in mega casting and the gossips around them, <laughs> right? Yeah, none, no supplier wants to ship that big casting and take the logistics cost of it. So definitely. <laughs> so all all your bean counters, all your wannabes, if you want to listen to, to mega castings, you have to look for another show because we, we're talking about real stuff here. And so you, you can find your information source somewhere else than yeah. just this pod episode. Because we have some other interesting toppings. Uh, we're going to cover things like uh, casting uh, supply quality, industry 4.0, uh, higher tonnage goods, mega castings, and, and, and the stuff that goes around it. How actually to, to be a supplier to Tesla? What are the musts and the do nots and, and all that? But I think we started off discussing people and competence who will probably touch base on that. So if, if, if you're interested in what to do with your career, uh, stay tuned for the full episode, right? Yeah, absolutely. Perfect. So also from the topic side here, so few companies really doing these giga castings. Now we're talking to the 99% who's not doing them, but supplying the castings. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but let's get into it. You also buy a lot of castings at Tesla. What is your sourcing strategy? 
Yeah, so I can definitely, I mean, disclaimer, I can only talk about what's public information, but uh, definitely our general approach that we, again, talk openly with our suppliers because uh, we believe transparency is the key. We don't want to hide behind, let's say, vague languages, uh, but our usual approach is definitely to find strategic suppliers that can grow with us long term. Because being a Tesla supplier, it's uh, very demanding uh, as well as, I mean, it's demanding as well as it comes with a lot of perks. So I'll touch touch base on both both ends of it. By, by being very demanding is, so we are talking about electric vehicles and uh, EVs have a drastic change in technology. We are moving away from steel structures to focusing more on aluminum, aluminum casting, aluminum structures, extrusions, uh, getting into body because the goal here is lightweighting. The more your body is lightweighted, the more your curve weight is low, you're going to get a better range. And as we all know, as potential customers or current customers or EV, range anxiety, even if you don't want to admit it, it is there. That's why people are, are a fan, still a fan of diesel because you can get that diesel, hop in with your kids, 600 kilometers on one tank, there's, there's no way around it. You can easily go 600 to 800 kilometers. So again, coming back to it, that's why we have uh, this anxiety and that's why lightweighting is the future uh, of EV and future of uh, the automotive industry, looking at the IC vehicle ban from coming from uh, UK and aggressive European targets that we see mm. in uh, pursuing these electric vehicles. So definitely lightweighting is the key. And I, I think in uh, castings, mm. Uh, in general, aluminum parts, aluminum extrusions, and aluminum castings are are, are going to take over the traditional manufacturing and steel structure. So, so, do you say would you say that we're in the beginning of this pursuit, or do you think we're halfway lightweightening? Or I mean, no, I, how, I how long in, will we talk about lightweight? Yeah, I, I think we. Yeah, I think lightweighting started started with those new uh, Euro standards on emissions mm -hmm. because lighter your vehicle is better. Better the emissions going to be, but now it's going very aggressive. I describe it as an S curve. So we are at the tip of the S curve, and it's going to go very aggressive from there because we mm -hmm. just started transitioning into it. We don't even know what technologies have been tapped into. There are so many startups coming up with with hollow structures, uh, making sure we are integrating many parts. Like we said, uh, we won't talk about mega castings, uh, giga casting. They all generate from the same problem child. That is making sure that we have less parts and lightweight solutions uh, rather than going with those uh, those heavy stampings with a lot of joining um, and all of that stuff. But coming back to your question, uh, what it takes uh, to be the supplier that I would say every OEM will look for it. But especially with Tesla, our strategy is, again, we are very demanding. We are very aggressive with our timelines. We want our suppliers to be aggressive with their timelines. We don't want to say we, want, we, don't, we don't launch programs. Let's say the traditional OEM, they will announce a vehicle and it will be launched in, let's say, three years, four years. The concept is announced. We, we are not that. As you guys have seen, public information, when we announced Model 3, it was on the road in six months. We announced Model Y, you guys saw it uh, in eight months. So it's not a very traditional approach, but you have to see the backbone of all of this is our suppliers. And that's where this is all coming from. So definitely Tesla is a very demanding company, but I also talked about it comes with its perks. So you have Tesla's business, you know, like every other customer will know you can handle uh, challenges, you can handle complexity, you can handle aggressive timelines. So all of these new startups will come to you. I mean, they'll blindly give away the business because they're like, okay, if you've done the best in the industry, you can definitely support our small volume program that's going to test start the, the consumer base. So, I, I need to I jump into that a little bit. 
you're talking about the speed. Uh, I have my own experiences and I'm an old telecom guy. If, if I make a statement, Tesla is more like a telecom company when it comes to, to launching new castings. You, you do it much faster. Uh, first yeah. of the tool into production is that way shorter. I also note that you are actually changing parts in your vehicle in, in the program. The other guys, they do they do a, a platform and then the platform stays. It's like sealed, you know, and then yeah. everybody's rushing for the next generation. If you if you don't make it to the toll gate with the A samples and B samples, you're pretty much out. But you just seem to be changing things all the time and you do it in a in a in a space that is interesting. Yeah, I think that is uh, the philosophy behind the product. Again, uh, this is widely discussed even by with our with our CEO. Uh, he has communicated it multiple times as well. This is a notion like Model S was launched in 2012 and we still sell Model S. There's no not a specific like traditional life of the program because the product is meant to be continuously improved. I remember when I got my Tesla, it had none of the features that I absolutely love that it has today. Like I, I'm addicted to some of the features that all came over the over the air. Uh, I had my cameras upgraded, free of cost, everything free of cost. I had my autopilot cameras upgraded, my uh, hardware computers upgraded. It was all done just to make the, the vehicle better over time. Uh, with a traditional automotive, it is not possible. I used to have a Dodge Challenger before, Stellantis, wonderful brand. I used to love that car, but it has so many problems. and the enthusiasm just like kind of went down in let's say mm. six months. Okay, I spent so much money on this. I love the sound of it, but this is not that spark. But this one, every update, every over the year update I get, it's a brand new feature. Like I love mm. that previously for to engage the autopilot, it was double stock. Now I just have to pull the stock once and it's it's an FSD, full self driving. So that these are small things, but it takes a lot of back end work to push through mm. these things and making the changes. It's a part of evolution of the product. It's making the product better without like switching platforms because in my opinion, switching platform is like, hey, customer is bored with it. We let's give him a facial refresh. If you look at the components, like I would give you an example, Audi e-tron, the 2023 model, the rear, the rear air vent is exactly the same as the 2013 and 2014 model. So where is the innovation there? I think uh, these OEMs need to realize that it's much more than just a facelift that they have to do a platform change or they have to do an update. I think this is where we are doing a better job. Yeah, but <clears throat> I, I have an experience and I try another statement. It, it's very interesting what you're saying, but we, we saw a clash between automotive foundries trying to get into the, to the telecom. And my friends are in telecom. And, and, and of course, we have a few bears, you know, from time to time. And then you ask, how did it go with this? big juicy foundry group that you know are on every trade show where everything is shiny and lighting and and the telecom guys goes like yeah we tried but they they couldn't cope even in theory with our our um, launch model for for new heat sinks and these heat sinks are 25 30 kilos they're pretty advanced toolings are advanced number of sliders all that i'm sorry speaking about technology but it's not simple parts and yeah. in the beginning, they walk into the conference room and said, hey, we are, you know, 300,000 people. We are blah, blah, blah. We have those investments. And, and and in the end, they're not even quoting because when they see the model, the first out of the tool, and then they, they sample three weeks after, and, and the, the telecom OEM actually uses these for sending to customers. That sounds a little bit more like Tesla. And what I'm trying to make a point here, the tr traditional sourcing environment must be a challenge for Tesla to find people that could cope with your your design and innovation model. 
Yeah, is no, that absolutely. True? Yeah, that that is. I think that is very very true. It's never. I I would say from what I've seen, it's never about how big the suppliers or how long have they been in the industry. It's more about is the supplier who want to grow, who want to be the part of that change, uh, push new boundaries, like both in time, and like aggressive timelines as well as technologies. Because some of these designs are very complicated. You're looking at a mold design again. Sorry to get into technology. I know we we didn't we we decided not to talk about it, but mold design with like three different sliders coming from different sides. You also have two squeeze pins on the other side. You have to time it all right. It's a lot of complexity. Not everyone wants to sign up. Like, why would you get a head up headache where your engineering manager is coming on very early, like staying up late, trying to fix it up, trying to blow the die, seeing all those slides work properly. No one wants to get that uh, level of stress, but the suppliers who want to grow, they'll take it as a challenge. Uh, mm. I've, I've worked with wonderful people. I learned a lot from the older colleagues at the suppliers. They are like, where were you guys before? You guys have challenged me in like 20 years. My my timeline was like, hey, come in at 8 a.m., uh, work on my regular stuff, uh, 4 p.m., I'm signed up. But now this is so challenging. You're pushing the boundaries. I have to figure out how to time this squeeze pin correctly so you can get that in intensification pressure and your, your quality issues are down, our scrap rate is down, uh, and we can make more money. So all of that, that, that approach and that understanding needs to be cultivated within the supplier. And the suppliers that we work with are not big big name suppliers because of that reason. Because usually the big name suppliers are too comfortable working with traditional OEMs, don't want to push the boundaries, not don't want to be aggressive with their with their timeline and uh, with mm. their approach. So I think that's that's where the traditional casting industry needs to need to level up. But what, what is the biggest difference? It, it, it's the culture, you say. So so. But it's the culture. The cast, it's definitely yeah. the culture. Yeah, because usually at this newer, I wouldn't say newer casting companies, like fairly younger casting companies, that the talent is very motivated. They know what's going on in the market. They know the IC engine ban is coming up. We won't be casting cylinder heads. We won't be casting transmissions anymore. Mm -hmm. We need to shift our focus, get that electric powertrain business. So these guys are very aggressive. And that's what makes them makes them more more successful and grow exponentially. I wish I could name suppliers, but I cannot. But definitely, some of the players are, are getting very big just because of this approach. And more people, uh, more people, or I would say more suppliers, learn from it. They can get on that train because it's open for all. It's not uh, like someone is blacklisted. It's like open for all. You be aggressive. You be innovative. You manage your time well. You put in your best engineering effort. No one can stop you from getting business. Yeah, so it's basically also for the company itself, you have to do it totally different. You don't have to be, okay, now we have to wait three months for the next board meeting to take the decision if we do it or if we can change it. You So the culture has to be that you're innovating yourself on the fly. Or do you, yeah, do you see other similarities within your supplier base? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And I want to tap into what you said, uh, waiting in those board meetings. So decision making is also the key. Uh, mm -hmm. Many decision makers at many of these suppliers are bound to their traditional thinking as well. Like, hey, if I can get this big European OEMs business, I think I'll be set for long. But you have to see how that product will be will be performing in the market. You are putting these this fancy lines with automated solutions. You have like seven CNC machines set up, ready for ten thousand per week volume, but there's no demand. All your capex investment is gone. Like, you will have to repurpose those machines, and if these are purpose-built machines, the, the money is just gone. So these decisions should be collectively made with like thorough understanding of the product, not just the, hey, it's a big OEM, they gave us the business, just invest it all. 
Like mm. study the product, the, the industry is changing. You know, these suppliers don't want to be the Nokia and Blackberry of the casting industry, where you're stuck with a product that is not innovating, that is not going anywhere. You still want to be the supplier just because it's comfortable. In order to be successful, they have to come out of their comfort zone. Well, you're pointing out decision-making. <clears throat> I love that theme. But how, when you look at the, the, the supplier market, the, the, the competitive landscape among uh, foundries, I mean, there's KPIs for everything, but not that. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. you have to interview the guys. You have to be a psychology, have a psychology degree, you know, and then say, please stay on the bench here. I, I'm going to ask you a few questions <laughs> to understand who is actually calling the shots. Do he has the power to do it? Uh, and it's not the CEO only. It's it's a production manager. It's the part development manager and and, and all that. How how do you, how do you get a feel that this is in a positive way, aggressive company that can take decisions. We want to we want to cuddle with these guys. They, they would do a good part somewhere in one year from now. How, how do you get the feel for it? I, w- I would give you an example. For example, if if we are discussing something with a supplier and they're like, oh yeah, we can we can get back to you on this and we have to do this business case. We have to understand this requirement. We don't have time for that. We have to source this part. The, the program is is running. Like It's not a traditional OEM part that's going to launch in 2026, 2025. The clock is ticking, tick tock. I mean, you either you perform, either you give us the quote or you, you have your engineering team engage in a DFM. We want to move here. We don't have time for you to take those approvals, like discuss this internally, go through five people. We want to talk to someone who, who knows what they're doing, who want to grow the business. This is what their ambition is. This is where they want to be. Very clear mindset. It's not we just want to secure business and, hey, my, my job was to get in this business, then I'm out. We need very dedicated folks, and that's how we gauge. I mean, it's easy to gauge. We're looking at so many suppliers and talking to so many people with different mm. mindset and different approach. I won't say I won't say I can pinpoint some things, but there are different themes on the same approach: the being aggressive or being um, hungry for for growth. It's, it's more a feeling that you 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 try to appreciate somewhere. And uh... yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if I point out certain things, it might not be applying for every everyone and everything. So. That's the reason I would say it's more of a feeling about being aggressive and looking forward to those engineering challenges. But I was, see, see if I'm, I'm right here, we were a component producer before we were selling machines today, just making that statement and not trying to sell components to you. We had a German um, potential customer and we had the drawings and uh, we had, I think it was eight documents. Uh, the worst one was well, like 108 pages. Others oh, wow. 22 to 60 pages. Yeah, I think it was eight. You, you know, the email that was like, and then you felt like, okay, I, I'm not going to catch a, a cup of coffee. I'm going to make a thermos of coffee, take the weekend off to read everything. <clears throat> Half year later, we did something with, with you guys. Three documents, one material spec, three pages, then some general rules, seven, eight pages. And the third one was basically the part, the last and left, right? It was read through with one cup of coffee it meant that we could actually answer you know two o'clock in the afternoon is this the tesla way that you try to stay out of the the legacy of uh, design rules and, and uh, all these things yeah yeah i think that that we can see i mean it's it's out there in public as well you can see the approach that is taken with part design it's very simplified it's based on first principles i mean our ceo always talks about being like towards first principles making sure we understand the physics behind anything that we are approaching this 
questioning everything. So before anything goes to the supplier, it's already vetted by so many, so many loops of questioning. Why? Why? Why is this the case? Why is this? Why do we have that small hole? Do you need, need to be that a casted boss? Or we can just have uh, a, a drill hole and put a rivnet on that part. Why? Why do you need it to be casted boss? Like, why do you want to have a porosity risk in that area? So all of that is already like being discussed and like filtered through us. I mean, that's that's basically our job to make sure that the part is industrializable and to find the right partners who can do it. So that's I think that's more the approach where. I don't think the traditional OEM, like the, you get a big package that is sent out. I think it's straightforward. This is the part, this is the drawing, this is the CAD, this is the GDNT. This is what you need to DFM, design for manufacturing. Mm -hmm. So for me, it really looks like you focus on the outcome. What should the casting be and not the process on how to make the casting, whatever the result yeah. will be. Yeah, yeah. As yeah, much but... as we can cut those loops, that is better. Mm -hmm. But, but that's a little bit interesting. Uh, now I have to be a little bit techy. You can shoot me afterwards, Fabian. But if you look at alloys you're using, some of your colleagues in Europe, they, they wouldn't touch them with a glove even. If you look at uh, copper content and all that stuff, they're pretty basic, straightforward. They, they have a process window with, which is uh, <laughs> makes life a little bit easy. Uh, if you look at your specifications again, it's like one fifth of the pages you have to read through. And also uh, one tenth of the number of documents. Yeah, one yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to get to something here. Uh, I mean, th then you have the Chinese automakers, which is yeah. actually one step further down the line where, where a purchaser can say that ah, we don't need an M3 here. That's just mm -hmm. costly. Make it M M5 because all the, all the other things are M5. Being in that room too. So Tesla is kind of in between, right? And, yeah, and I my would thinking say is what does it make for the car and and, and sometimes i feel that the, the big pivoting here or the, the big disruptive thing is actually understanding that a car maybe not need to have an alloy with 0.03 percent of copper it it won't rust guys and uh, you can actually do things this way and still make a profitable car and and what i'm trying to get at Could it be that the design culture in Europe has developed to a, a system where we, the good, the, the perfect is standing away for the good, good enough? I would take it with a grain of salt. Is it perfect, though? Because it's not like there's no recall on European OEM vehicles. There's no failures in, in the field. Ouch. I think it's more about, uh, it's more about chasing. Uh, I would put it this way. It's more about sticking to the rule book rather than thinking out of the box. There we go. Like, why is that needed, right? Why is that needed? It doesn't make sense. Like, I think, I cannot remember the model. I rented a, a vehicle. Uh, it was an electric vehicle. It still had on the start button, it said start engine. Like, who was the product manager for that? It's an EV. Why would you have a start engine button? <laughs> the part was already there, so we put it in. Yeah, the part was already there, yeah. And no one wanted to change that. Like, why? Like, It goes through so many, I mean, if you look at a traditional like OEM's approval cycles, mm. that product had several product managers that product went through. So many test drives, people took that home for like months and no one could tell when I'm pressing the button to start the car, it's an electric vehicle and it says start engine. Like this is this is a perfect example. I mean, this is just what the customers can see, what is public information. If you go down deep into the part, Uh, do a let's say Sandy Munro in the U.S. He's he's stripping off these vehicles, getting these castings out. You can see his approach as well. I mean, some of the traditional body invites that you see, there's no innovation there. Like people are not questioning these things, right? 
And I would say from the supplier standpoint, they need to push back too. Tell us what this part does. Tell us, we all have an NDA with suppliers. I mean, it's not, they're not going to tell you what this part does or what it's going to do. Like suppliers should be aggressive there to ask like, hey, uh, can I suggest an alternative method? Tell me what this product does. Tell me what this casting is for. Uh, what are the contact points? I can probably give you a better option. I can probably change this boss to a rim nut, to a hole or to a spack nut or just remove it all, all in all. So that, that should be the approach that, that the OEMs needs to change. But who am I to speak? Yeah, it's also if you see some parts, okay, this one casting, there's another one, small casting next to it. Why don't we integrate them into one? It's not maybe from go from 800 ton machine up to uh, maybe 2,500 or 3,500 ton machine, but you still reduce the number of castings in that way. Yeah, yeah, but that requires new gating design. That requires new flow simulation. That requires a lot of work. So who wants to do that work? See, that's <laughs> yeah. why the industry needs to be pushed through, right? We relaunched a part in aggressive timing. It's a one cavity part, but it's a huge tonnage machine that's been used. Make it two cavity. Try think it three cavity. Like it's it's a cost saving on your end. I know the yeah. mold is going to be expensive, but why don't try it out? But no one wants to tap that. So. Yeah. Especially do a bit more machining, but have three castings in one shot. That's a big advantage. These CNC mills are way cheaper than the normal casting machines. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, machining time is also very expensive these days, but uh, definitely, I mean, if you are casting three parts instead of uh, one part in one shot, that's way more savings in your process time and your overall OEE. Sometimes I learned a saying when I was a newcomer to the telecom industry. My boss said, in every product, there's a time where I had to shoot engineer and start production. I mean, you always kind of think that, oh, this is a, that big a decision and all that. But then you look back after five years when you're sitting there drinking your tea. <sighs> yeah. How, how much did it actually matter if I, I pulled three cavities, but I had to weld the, the, the third mm -hmm. one off, right? Yeah, yeah. Because I delivered the damn part and everybody was happy. And at the end of the day, the turnover was there. And end of the day, everybody had their salary. And then we... We do it again, but again, I'm coming back to when you let the perfect stand away of the good, good enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there has to be a culture of continuous improvement. I mean, continuous improvement brings in more money for anyone, like mm. need an OEM. I mean, we improve our products. You have seen our vehicle prices go down. That's not because of demand. That's definitely because of all the savings, cost savings we are getting. We are passing it down to our beloved customers because this is how their business should be done as. Yeah, but, but if you look at the legacy OEMs, if there's a facelift coming up, which is just some optical things, the car gets more expensive. The question is just how much more expensive will it be? Because you yeah, get a new navigation system, which does require to buy a 400 euro DVD to get the upgrade for the maps, yeah. which are already five years old when you buy the car. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you touched the right point. People need to question. I mean, that's why people are becoming wiser and wiser in making these purchase decisions. And especially when I, what I saw in Europe is car buying is a very big life event in Europe. I mean, it's not like in the US where you have like, hey, I need to buy a car. Let me go get approved for a loan, buy tomorrow. I think it's a long thought process. Uh, you look at different models. You look what your grandfather drove, uh, what brand you're loyal to. I, I still remember one of my colleagues from, from uh, a very famous OEM uh, was telling me that uh, he used to go to Munich. Uh, the first car he got, he got the plate. He went down to Munich, got it from their headquarters, and then drove it down back to Berlin. So that was an event for him. But uh, he mm. no longer thinks 
think that the product is the same OEM's product is more innovative, and now he he definitely drives a Tesla, and and that's how that's how his thought process changed. He's like, I was always loyal to that that OEM. My grandfather drove it, my father drove it, very reliable. I mean, I didn't see many issues with it, but nothing has changed. He didn't see innovation in it. I think that's that's the key there. But do you think is this for everybody? I I must challenge you a little bit. I mean, if you if you look at the diecasting landscape, especially of of Europe, people had had filled order books, energy prices was killing the the margin. So they are actually in a pretty bad shape. And and to become aggressive, if I compare friends and colleagues in in the telecom industry, for example, they have people that could just jump into a new project and and be that aggressive and and, and be in the face of the designer and incorporate. But if you look at the many companies in the foundry industry, they don't have an R&D guy. If you start to speak about a different alloy, for example, to, to, to meet a challenge, there's no nobody home. They have uh, eight tie casting machines. Everybody has the same surname. Uh, the CEO is doing the sales, and that's the old dad. And then you have the sons running production, and another is running maintenance. What I know. And there's no room for improvement because our dear European car makers, they have been chasing the cost and chasing the price for what, 40 years? There's not room yeah. for two extra guys, two salaries to, to, to be in the face of Tesla because Understood. it has not been required. And, and how do you find these guys? Uh, so it's always uh, what I would say. There's always a right supplier for the right part. Mm. The example that you just gave: CEO is running the sales. Let's say CEO is running the sales. Uh, there are older guys with the same surname, family-run business. Uh, definitely don't have a metallurgist. Uh, cannot do alloy composition. Cannot try new alloys. Don't have good relationship with other foundries that they can tap into the resources to access to their metallurgist. Hey, this is a small modification in the 374 can you guys help me out they're like why would you why would we help you like we are competitors we are different foundries we won't help uh, in this case what they are doing the best it's not it's not that every part has a completely different alloy the alloys are still industry standards that are used in many parts so i think choosing the right supplier for the right part is the key and again if that supplier wants to be wants to be aggressive with growth change has to come through somewhere I mean, if they want to try new alloys, they have to try new alloys. In that case, they have to hire someone who can do those trials of new alloys. But to grow existing business, they should target the parts with that aggressive approach that mm. they already do, that they already know that they're best in making. A 374 alloy, they, they know that. They're like, we can do this best. It's very easy to cast for us. We know the tools. We know how the flow will work with these. Quote apart that that is 374 that you're most comfortable with. Be aggressive with that. Cut out all the other competitors who, who are not used to that part. So it's also choosing the right partner because not everything is not for everyone and everyone is not for every every OEM. That's interesting. That's, but especially when you say that all the companies have to be so aggressive and you also stated that some of them are quite small and we look on the other side of the metal. What is left behind? Where should be more improvements from your point of view? Do you mean improvement on the smaller suppliers or on the bigger suppliers? We can tackle both individually. Yeah, so I would say on the, so this is this is on the perspective of supplier growth. Okay. Uh, I would say on the small supplier side, like, like we just discussed with, with Stefan, it's more like do what you do the best. Be aggressive in that because the small supplier will be more comfortable in that. They don't have resources 
to invest more, let's say, two new headcounts like Stefan just mentioned for one for metallurgists, one to do those trials, have a have a small prototype uh, lab to, to run those metallurgical tests, see the grain structure, how it's performing. They don't have that resources completely understood. They should do what they do best. There's there's still an older company. There's still those uh, family people who've been working it for so long. They should they should work on stuff that they already know. And when the energy prices are not going to be high for for forever, it has to come down. This is just the the current market dynamics that are like pushing it uh, with the the approach that the governments have taken. I mean, we we cannot comment on that. It's a strategy, but this is not going to be forever. I mean, they 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 should weather the storm. Uh, they should do what they do best, the alloys that they're comfortable with, the process that they're comfortable, just be aggressive with work. So be aggressive with timelines, manage your suppliers more aggressively, get in those machines quickly, Get call those uh, CNC suppliers like, hey, I, I cannot take 52 weeks lead time. I know this part very well. I know this alloy very well. Let me pull in the, the CNC machine. I need it in 40 weeks. I need it in 35 weeks. What do I need to do? Do I need to come there, uh, be on your head to get the CNC machine delivered? So do, as a small supplier, do what you can. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not always about investing money. It's not <clears> always <throat> about hiring people. It's all, also about changing your core approach. I was making a Gantt schedule. You know, we, we, we are dealing in the business of, of placing rear-casting stations all over the world. And, and uh, Perry Olsen, our CEO, is, Olsen, he's, so. he's, he's a guy sounding a little bit like you but in Swedish, uh, <laughs> and he was so pissed off, you know, because everybody asks us, okay, what is the lead time of a slurry maker? Yeah, it's, it's it's 12 weeks. And then it says, but it takes you one year. He's yeah. pretty provocative. And then people go, one year, are you kidding us? And then he actually made a very nice GAN schedule, discussion about Rio casting, eight weeks. Yeah. Getting the PO out, first you have a handshake, and then getting the PO out. And we know this for a fact, it could be everything between three weeks and nine months because and here comes the funny thing about decision making that some really nice customers we have but they had to have that quarterly review meeting of the capex spending right and on this particular meeting in may the cfo was i don't know broke a leg uh, something happened you know so so the board had to discuss other topics so they pushed it another quarter and and boom boom there you go nine months after i get the the, the damn po i get it as a christmas present after a handshake in easter okay <laughs> uh, I, I mean these are good guys i love them right yeah yeah and they yeah. are forward leading because they have real casting so i had that said yeah. as well but you, you see my point and we're a small company do you think we start to build a machine like yeah of course we deliver it to you we can take to PO later yeah i mean it's a it's only that amount of money hey come on we're friends i mean yeah, and, and, and this is this is, i'm not saying nine months is is typically but Pat yeah. Johnson is right. It, it is eight weeks that we actually do this thing. And then we install yeah. it in one week, all right? Everybody's happy. Uh, and yeah. we even have the tooling on the other side. But the, out of these 52 weeks, discussions and administration is the waste majority of the lead time to getting the thing in place so you can start to pour molten metal. Yeah. And yeah. It, it yeah. is and this I is a culture, you know. This is absolutely, I, I definitely hate this approach because again, as a supplier, even if I put myself in supply shoes, let's say in your case, you had that floor space, you had that line area, you had those casting machines sitting idle because you already promised that capacity to your supplier and now to your customer, and now they are taking 
one year to make that decision. You're losing money on the floor. I mean, floor space is expensive. You're still paying people to be on there, be around the casting machine, you still have TPM, you still have your maintenance team on your on your uh, payroll. So mm-hmm. that that's why I'm telling you, like choosing the right customer is also important at times because if there's no decision making at the customer, it's just mm-hmm. gonna be delayed. Like there's no one in the board that can talk to the CEO, hey CEO, we sympathize with you, you broke your leg, but there has to be someone, business has to move as usual, so mm-hmm. we can pay everyone, we can grow as a company. Like your leg is gonna be very expensive if it's if it's yeah. broken. Need to take <laughs> that that decision, right? <laughs> yeah, but the thing is like people need to like uh, speak up in the interest of the company and not yeah. just like follow the traditional bureaucracy. Hey, I'll wait for my boss, my boss is out of office. My boss is in Sicily, in Italy, taking a vacation. After summer holidays, we'll, we'll we'll talk to him. We'll try to get this approval. We'll try to see the strategy. This has to change to to grow grow in this uh, competitive market. I don't know if you want to comment that, but but we have a pretty dark picture of, of European automakers, uh, dear Fabian and I, without naming anyone. But but we feel that they're pretty smoked. You know, they're they're making super expensive electrical cars. That they, I mean, look at the part when I do grocery shopping once a week, right? You can picture me doing that. I, I really love it, right? There's a big parking lot. We're living in Sweden. You look out on the cars and, and, and you realize that 70% of these cars, if, even if I sell them today, the, 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 the value will be not be enough for the down payment for, for, for getting one of these new vehicles that are made yeah. in Europe. Uh, and, and we yeah. see also the, the statistics. Someone was making a forecast that we're going from 9.6 million cars the previous year to, to 6.9. And, and it is supposed to be falling somewhere down to five. Then a sneaky guy from California starts to sell cars that people actually can afford. Well, my conclusion is, or conclusion, my theory is that we have developed their own cars for the market. People cannot afford them. Yeah, it's not even about affordability. It's also about like uh, making a product that is like genuine and makes up to the cost that you're asking the customer to pay. Like I mentioned previously, mm-hmm. Especially in Europe, car buying is a life decision. And if if a customer bought the car and they feel cheated, I'll give you an example. I think everyone knows this, but not many people talk about it. There's a there's a big European OEM that has that high volume vehicle that is the electric vehicle, very high volume, high, very popular in Europe. They also sell that same exact model in China. And in China, the price of that car, that vehicle, is 50% less just so yeah. that they can stay competitive in the market. If anyone from Europe, or let's say they're a very popular brand in Germany, if anyone from Germany who spent at least one year researching that model, like deposited all that cash to pay them upfront to make that vehicle purchase, the other day he's sitting on the internet seeing that in China, that same exact model he paid 60,000 euros to buy is selling for 30,000 euros, he will feel cheated. It's like mm. drop shipping. Like you are buying a product from Amazon, you look up yeah. at Temu or Taobao in China, it's a, the Amazon of China, and you look at it and it's like 70% off. You yeah. feel con. It's so funny that you're mentioning this because when we have all these big companies in Quilligary, we had a nice dinner and exact this was brought up by a guy from a Swedish truck manufacturer, but not from Södertälje, if I put it that way. And, and the discussion went from the starter through the entrecot all the way to the creme brulee. How is this possible that we stupid consumers in this cold country can pull up with this? 
and, and how you know people were getting a little bit tipsy as well and the discussion about okay can we do parallel import and yeah and your strike was up on the table as well yeah <laughs> so so i think you can you can have that live decision i think this is a generation question because if yeah, i look yeah. at my kids they are 18 22 and 25 only one of them are interested about the sound from a V8. The other two, the first thing they check is the infotainment system. If I change my car and say, hey, it's perfect for hunting. I could go, you know, deep snow. It's a nice diesel. It's 210 horsepower. So they go, yeah, but the internet connection is pretty crappy. <laughs> and I go like, yeah, but, you know, this is my, my nice new diesel. And they go, yeah, but, you, you know, the internet connection is pretty crappy. So. Here comes the question. Has the car industry misunderstood the new generation of people that actually needs to buy a vehicle? That is not a life decision. It's not going to Munich to pick up the car. It is just A to B. And when I'm sitting there, it should drive itself. Uh, I will listen to my uh, Rammstein recording or my podcast from, from Goldcasting. And, and uh, it, yeah, it should be easy. It should be, be cheap. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, the OEMs need to, not even the newer generation, I think they need to look at the average consumer, what do they want? What is out there in the market? How are you competing with what is out there in the market? If you're releasing a gimmicky software just to like catch up with it, it's, it doesn't make sense. I, I tried the another European OEMs, the, the EDAS, the automated driving. It is very gimmicky. It's like it cannot even take a turn it tells you to to engage because it's based on the front car. It's following the front car. There's no neural network. There's no machine learning in that. It's just a basic cruise control that they are upselling for a ridiculous amount of price. Yeah. If that same customer goes to Tesla, luckily we do not advertise at Tesla. It's all word of mouth. You go, you you talk to someone who drives one. They'll tell you things about it, and then you go. You will never see a commercial. But the thing is, if that guy goes and drives one of the other competitors, even some of the, the Swedish manufacturers and some of the Chinese companies have a very better system than these OEMs that have been doing it for 90 years. Like you have the product team that has developed over 90 years and you cannot understand the voice of customers and you are cheating them basically. Is it really that the OEMs, legacy OEMs still develop their things? Or they shifted off to some suppliers, especially that with the true. automatic driving. If you look at the cable tree, there's a control box for the seat heating, another control box for the adjustment of the seat, a different uh, box for the windshield wipers. And none of them are communicating. All of them have different software standards and developed by a different supplier. So you can't even push down an update because it's intellectual property of someone else. And I yeah, see it yeah. as my Tesla, yeah. especially as I bought it, there was no parking sensors. There's still no, but then it came an update and there was the camera solution. Now I do have park distance control. Yeah, That's, and wait for the holiday update. You'll be you'll be in for a surprise. You'll you'll see very good improvement in that. So hold on to that. But definitely that's the that's the input. It has to develop over time. Systems have to interact with each other. Like so fine, you go for hunting, you have you have a car that interacts with itself, its component, you just take out your phone. When you're ready to go, you just press, keep it ready. It'll all be heated up, toasty mm -hmm. for you. Steering wheel will be heated up. All the windows will be defogged. You'll be ready. It's, it'll be a good hunting day. It's not like you'll be mm -hmm. still shivering, waiting for your diesel to heat up. And like, okay, let me rub my hands before I go to go go home. Do you have a, so, you have a heated camera in my vehicle? 
You're kind of describing the situation pretty good, you know. It's mm -hmm. minus 14 degrees, and you're sitting there where you have your hat, you have your gloves, and then you drive five kilometers to take a hat off, and then it's, it's like a striptease show with a middle-aged guy, not not good looking. Uh, and, then, and then in the end, you're sitting in a t-shirt and trying to drive down to Stockholm. <laughs> Yeah, but that, that's why that's why my point is there is a very high official at let's say these OEMs that is also hunting, that is also driving these vehicles. Why is it not coming to his mind that hey, I need to improve this product? Why my car is not ready for me when I'm like walking towards my car, or why there's no phone connection to my car? Why can't I heat it up? Because they don't want to open their horizon. They're like, oh, I've been working for this company for so long. I have a chauffeur comes picks me up. I do my hunting. The chauffeur is already heating up the car. I sit in. It's not the approach, and these are the decision makers. But then you're then know. you're appointing that we have the right the wrong people actually in 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 the companies, and I, I would like to challenge that. I think they are too. They had to be knowing what they're talking about, which means they had had a career with inside the, the company. But you're working for a company that is surrounded by so many myths. For example, that you're hiring people from the food industry for for the quality assurance because the food industry everything should look the same and uh, and all these and uh, we all hear, hear the rumors. We have a Swedish guy that used to work with Elon and he was called by, by a friend. Uh, read an interview three o'clock in the morning and the friend said, "I'm so sorry, I'm calling you three o'clock in the morning." And his reply was like this: "I'm used to it. I worked with Elon Musk." Uh, so yeah. <laughs> I mean, the myths are so strong. So so you probably don't need a marketing department. As soon as Elon is on Twitter, or is it called X nowadays, it, 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 something happens, yeah. you know, this, this, the stock market goes to minus 22% or, or up 38, just saying something. But have you heard a press release from uh, some of the European automakers? No, you haven't, because you fall asleep, right? <laughs> no, not not really. I, I won't say I follow up those on those news, but definitely something that is floating around. I keep my eyes and ears on it just because we are in the industry and we want to make sure. But I know what whom you are talking about. Mm -hmm. I work with him as well. Uh, he works for a Swedish OEM now. He's very intelligent, very good friend. Mm -hmm. I know exactly whom you're talking about. But, but coming to it, you have all the myths. And one theme we have in this podcast, it wasn't planned to be that way, but we kind of figure out that it's all about the people. Uh, so, so here comes a straightforward question. Is it easy for you to find qualified people that, that kind of fits into the, the Tesla culture? I mean, it must be difficult recruiting. Yeah, so yeah, I would say I think this has been discussed by our recruiting team as well uh, publicly that, uh, I mean, I think it's a known fact as well. The hiring rate is the expectations are very, very high. Because again, let's say I'll give you an example. Uh, let's say you're working at a traditional, and I, I used to work for Daimler. I had the most cushiest job. Uh, I can say that it's public information. It's on my profile. I had, it's on my projects. I did my black belt project there. But it's it's a very cushy and comfortable job. I I I personally, being a young uh, individual uh, out of college, I wanted to grow my career. I wanted to learn more. I I never wanted that cushy job. Uh, that's the reason for was for my switch, and I did my internship when Tesla was a very young company, and I did way more work as an intern than I did in that OEM as a full-time employee for two months, and that's what like was a trigger for me. I need to get back to this company definitely, and their mission it's it's a mission-driven company. The mission is to make sure we accelerate the world's transition to sustainable energy. What is the mission at other OEMs? Make more money, make more cars, get that volume. We are all driven towards that mission. Every product, every 
thing that I work for is like, okay, we want to make sure if the cars, the vehicles are more affordable. When I work with my suppliers fighting for that cost improvement opportunity, fighting for those process improvement opportunities, I go to your CNC floor, give me the cycle times, make sure we can optimize this tooling cycle. I need a PCD cutter instead of this traditional drill. Why you have so many costs in the tool? This is all motivated because we want to reduce the cost. And why do you want to reduce the cost? Not to make more money. Definitely the business has to be profitable, but it is also to make sure that the customers can afford these vehicles. The sustainability transition can happen, and it can only happen when the vehicles are affordable. So that's the motivation, and that's that's where I see the differences. And that's how, when when it comes to hiring as well, we look for those motivated individuals who are mm. bound to a purpose, who want to grow, want to make sure that they do something with their career, push the boundaries, push the engineering envelope, uh, look at the things from a fresh perspective, not mm. to just a rule book in their mind. Hey, I know how to design a casting. This is the gating structure you should go for. Try that gating structure in five different locations. That it's very untraditional. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. that's what we that's what we look for. I would say, and in, in, in my so opinion. you're looking for people that challenge more that that love that love to be challenged. I would yeah. say, be it engineering challenges, be it personal challenges. Let's say aggressive timelines. You have you have given a project. You you have given a deadline. It's not the case. You don't chase that deadline. You'll be like, okay, I have a deadline. I have three more weeks to work on. We, we try to like push the envelope like, hey, this will be ready in one week and this is ready in one week. And here's here's my other counterpart. Hey, now you have two extra weeks to work on your part. And but then that means okay. mean if, if, I, if I work in your department, I have to be willing and accepting that I will be challenged as well. Because if you look at a traditional company, it's it's like silos. You have a, the metallurgy guy, you have the machine yeah. guy, you have the right. tooling guy. And and then you know it goes silent because now it's the turn is the tooling guy. The tooling guy is telling you, yeah, we're doing it like this. And then yeah, it's the next guy, next guy, next guy. But if you're looking at the environment, it is a typical telecom. Yeah, but why do you do it like that? And and if you're offended as a person, your profile is easy <laughs> to be offended. Yeah, I kind of sense that you don't fit very well in the Tesla organization. <laughs> Uh, I don't fit very well. <laughs> no, but if you are offended easily, I mean, if, no, if you are like the, the German expert, you know, I'm a doctor, <laughs> doctor in uh, I, silicon I, I faces in A three five six. I spent fifty I years see. studying in a microscope, and then someone comes in and yeah, but screw that. We pour some more copper into it, and then it's castable. <laughs> I mean, then you will get offended. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I think uh, you 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 really hit a home run with that one because. Uh, I think I've seen that and I've worked with companies uh, that worked in these silos. Uh, I remember I used to work for Textron. It's a very big uh, defense contractor and a supplier for OEMs. And this is where I saw the, the silo approach can be very, very chaotic because, as you said, someone, let's say with 20 years of experience working on designing a part, saying, hey, this is the part, go find a supplier, source it. and mm-hmm. A, a young purchaser or a young buyer or a young uh, industrialization engineer, a young design engineer is coming to challenge and say, no, this is not how we're going to design it because the part, the intention of the part is not to be structural. It's a support structure. It's not a structural part. It's just a support mm-hmm. member. We can simplify the design. Let's not add too many ribs. We'll need more sliders there. Let's simplify the design, have a simple design. Let's go with it. Now, if they are rigid there, like, no, why are you telling me what to do? I've been doing. We, like, I don't think we have ever seen situations like this. It's very collaborative. It's very like everyone is open ears. Everyone knows 
that there's not a hidden agenda behind someone. No one is trying to prove a point. We are all trying to make our company better. We are all chasing that mission to accelerate world's transition to sustainable energy, get better products out, get make it more affordable. So it's no clash of egos. And what I've seen, I've seen this at suppliers as well. I, I remember a specific instance. Again, there's no names here. Uh, it's a very big supplier. And I was trying to, uh, this was very new. I just landed in Europe, tried to expand that supply base. And they were like, I've been I've been doing this for 80 years for the traditional OEMs. And they've been producing these, these uh, vehicles for 80 years. How can you push these new requirements? And by the way, just for context, I was trying to push for an NDT inspection hundred percent because mm-hmm. of heavy requirements of the torsional rigidity mm-hmm. and as well as the liability of the part. And they're like, we are doing the exact same part for the other OEMs for 80 years if you're with big names. Uh, he called out those names. He get very aggressive. And I was like, okay, hold on. What do you know about electric vehicles? What do you know about their lifespan? And you, 250,000 kilometers, your vehicle is going to die. Something is going to break. It's going to, there's going to be problem with engine or transmission. It's a, there's a lot of moving components. Yep. But in electric vehicles, regardless of it being Tesla or not being Tesla, I'm talking about electric vehicles in general. The architecture is completely different. The drive unit has an induction system. There's very less moving parts. There's a bunch of gears and a big copper coil propelled by electricity. He is not thinking about that perspective. He has his tunnel vision. I've been doing this for so long for these OEMs. Why does this guy come in and tell me I need 100% inspection? I need to put up a new line. And definitely we didn't work with them. But again, this is this is the attitude that these, I mean, that I cannot, I can totally say that if I talk, if I tell this incident to company's owner or their board, they will be like, why are you saying this? We want to grow in a new company. We want to understand the new requirements. But that is not the case, especially that individual led the whole company down. But th- these are the cases that needs to be like people need to be more aware, of, especially the, the folks that are responsible for sales, for engineering. They need to open up. They cannot be in that silo, in their cocoon. Hey, I know everything. Yeah. Uh, everything you tell you, you add silicon to this alloy, it's going to destroy the, the whole thing. Have you Have you added it? Have you cast it apart? Have you even casted a small nugget out of it and did a section and did a metallurgical analysis of it? No, you are just talking about it just because you are egoistic. You are, yeah. you think yeah. a lot, which is very bad. How do you grow a business? I mean, the leaders in the company needs to identify this. They need to promote the culture that is growth centric and not, let's say, fueling these egos. Yeah, but, but why it's is more it comfortable? that? Just do it the same way you did for eight years because you don't make a mistake, which is quite important for many larger companies not to make a mistake instead of doing five things and getting four over the finish line and achieving something new. No, doing the predictable is more important than being ignorant about new things because you can make a mistake there. I think that's something I heard in your... Is is that a good summary of what you just said? I yeah, but Europe is about that. If you don't do anything, you cannot be blamed for making a, a wrong decision. Yeah, right? but then, then, then innovation dies. Where will the innovation come from? This is oh, how yeah. innovation <laughs> dies. I mean, who oh, don't no, get I, restarted? I, yeah, but then innovation is something more of one. We have more than one percent growth rate. That's our innovation. <laughs> you, uh, that's, uh, I, that's I must, not it. Uh, yeah. I, I must make a comment. You know, you have the OEMs, and then you, they are surrounded by a cozy layer of tier ones. I'm not giving you names, but you can you can picture it, right? Yeah, 
And and the funny thing is, if someone whispers something at OEM, they shout at you. I was a component producer before, you know. And and if you if you come up with something, hey, I'm doing blah 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 blah. That's zero point five euros less on your part. They will ask for zero point eight. They they they're like <laughs> communists in old Russia, you know. They'll probably shoot you on the spot. <laughs> the communists, not the, the tier ones. There, there's no room for innovation. Yeah. Because A, they don't allow you to invest in people to be innovative. The second point is, if you are saying that, yeah, we changed the alloy to this and this because then the porosity, blah, 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 we meet a spec and it's it's cheaper. They don't dare to talk with OEM. I know this sounds crazy, but I'm telling you, they don't dare. Because at Comtech, yeah. we have the go-to-market strategy. We address the designer. What is your design problem? It's elongation, it's porosity, it's blah, 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 a lot of things. Yeah, And we understand now, after being a foundry since 1978, feel that, that the guys that are designing stuff goes like, yeah, but why didn't you tell us? Well, you know, we made like 500 pages of PowerPoint slides. We talk with your main supplier, this system that you have for, you know, heating, cooling the guy who's sitting with his hat in his diesel engine trying to get off from the hunting. You had people in the meeting and the only thing you were keep saying was, well, then we have to verify it. Yeah, okay, it's A356, it's the world's most common alloy, but okay, that's innovative, right? So. There's a big hinder here. There's no money to do it. There's no culture to accept something being better. And the third thing is, if you do it, they will take 150% of your profit from making the innovation. So why should I bring something to you? And then you go to, I'm sorry, being fueled up here. Then you go to a trade fair and you see new horizons in blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know, the big things, you know, the trade fair. And you go like, yeah, go and screw yourself because A, you will not allow it. B, you're too coward to propose it. And C, you will steal everything I will tell you. So what I will do, I will do exactly what I did for the last 80 years in this drivetrain component. I mean, I'm a knuckle caster. I'm stick to knuckles. I'm sorry for being emotional now, but, but no, you know, it's, it's driving yeah. me crazy because what you end I up with... It's a car, 1,500 kilos with a diesel engine. It it moves zero to to 100 in in what seven eight seconds. Uh, boring. <laughs> and try to sell that to the new generation that does doesn't have the brand loyalty. Because yeah, yeah. All, all this blah blah blah. I want to come back to to why is it like this? I think the the cozy OEMs listen our region. They are used to have a brand loyalty. That guy making a lifetime decision going to Munich to pick up his car, you know, because his granddad had the same. Yeah, yeah, good old, yeah, yeah. 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 But the yeah. youngsters, they don't care if they drive an Aura, a Tesla. Yeah, they like Teslas, but and BMW, Daimler, Volvo, whatever, whatever. Yeah. They go no. for the infotainment system. Yeah, it's <laughs> the car is for mobility, and then you want to have a nice time in there. That's yeah, yeah. yeah. My brother-in-law picked up a new Tesla previous week. He had it two weeks now, oh, and wow. his his yeah his young son is what nine years old. And I asked Gunnar, uh, okay, how did it work? It was a nice car. Okay, how long to, did it take you to, to understand this vehicle? Yeah, it was pretty easy. It like got 40 minutes and then you're full. Okay, and, and then I said, yeah, and my son figured out how to make farting sounds with the infotainment system. <laughs> it took him two minutes. 
<laughs> and now he's controlling everything and it has more reindeers running over the screen. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. you know, this nine-year-old guy, you know, did, 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 did. there you go. How, how do you think that guy is choosing a car in 11 years when the driver's license is in his pocket? Imagine that. Is he, is he going down to Munich to pick up the car after seeing the trade fair? Yeah? The new blinker system. Yeah, that yeah. sounds good. Yeah. Especially if you compare these funny rainbow reindeers and yeah. the other system where you can change the color of your screen from red to blue. Oh, Which yeah. one do you pick? <laughs> Which one do you pick? You, the GPS won't even line up until you have a clear sight of the sky in these uh, uh, OEM vehicles. There are 2020C models, I'm telling you. Not even like 2015. These are brand new 2023 models, yeah. but but yeah. But probably just back the screen is from 2020 through the system behind there is <laughs> somewhere based yeah, in yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah, but but if if you meet meet Elon Musk, I actually tried to send him an email that fluked. Uh, you you must say thank you, and we are promoting him to the being the best marketing manager of contact realcasting ever. <laughs> He's making my life so much easier. So so. But but maybe you shouldn't tell him because then he will invoice me the consultants for it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think he's making our lives easier easier as well, being a being a very powerful leader and dictating us and giving us that direction. I think that is very important. I think uh, it's it's very good for us as well. <laughs> but but it's totally a little bit interesting that you have a leadership from South African guy emigrating to Canada, going down to the US, and and I mean, I mean to look at the rockets. Everybody's using carbon fiber and ceramics. That's costing like five thousand <laughs> euros per hour. It is making them in stainless steel. <laughs> oh, but Starlink is making money. But yeah, that's that's a conversation for another day. But Starlink is is definitely uh, profitable now. If you look at the numbers out there, yeah. uh, it's break even. So yeah. yeah, it's paying off. It's paying off. Definitely paying mm, off. Yeah. The philosophy is, is coming through because it's the same for every industry. If you focus on the outcome and try to make it better all the time, you will end up yeah. with a better solution. But if you have Absolutely. one chance every seven years, that's not going to happen because the people that doing the decision seven years later, they're not there anymore. They're, they're in a different position. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Going back to the Starlink, it was it was COVID nineteen. Uh, we were we were thinking like this that if we're lucky, this virus is going to die, right? And then it sends up that freaking spaceship, and the guys from <laughs> California calls me. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, you better start supply number two because the volumes are pretty high, right? <laughs> and nice. we cannot travel to to Asia right now because we will sit like in a Chinese prison more or less for three weeks before we can actually turn a knob. So so that even if we were okay doing that, those three weeks didn't exist, right? Yeah. So we installed a machine in Asia with teams. Oh wow. That's yeah. very brave of you yeah. to do. <laughs> we got four cameras in our workshop. They got three cameras there, and I think it was Taiwan that that machine. And wow. you know, it it was like another day at, at work, lunch time, first day. Yeah, okay. Now we have the electricity, and you, you guide the guy. I mean, they're they're good guys, so so no problem yeah. like that. But but anyway, we installed a machine via Teams. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's the that's the approach you gotta take by hook or crook. Get the get the stuff done. <laughs> Yeah, but you know, 15 years ago, we no, 20 years ago, we flew a DC machine from Europe to China to 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 hit the delivery date for a new telecom part. 
Uh, It was the OEM actually paying for it, but (laughs) it went from Utsville, imagine the supplier of that DC machine, uh, and then a Russian transportation (laughs) (laughs) needed to find an airstrip that was like four miles long, (laughs) and then pushed in the DC machine and flew it to Shanghai. Yeah, it works. If you you can imagine it, it probably works. Yeah, open the north cone of the plane, push your your package, heavy logistic charges for that plane. Yeah, 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 but these were the times before Greta, you know, you can imagine the, the amount of kerosene to take off. <laughs> yeah, I think that casting machine will take a long time to be sustainable again. Uh, it will never be, I can tell you that. Yeah. What's your understanding of Industry 4.0? Because there are so many systems promising something. What's your take on that? What actually makes a difference in Industry 4.0? Yeah, definitely. So I'll, I'll cover uh, two two topics in that industry 4.0, and as well as uh, what does an ideal supplier look like who is using industry 4.0 as well as uh, working on this. So industry 4.0 is definitely not something that you can go to a to a supplier. Hey, I need an integrator. I need industry 4.0. Everything needs to be tracked, processed, and then just give me the data. It is much more than that. Making sure you have process monitoring system from your melting furnace, the first degas that you do, going it to, to your holding furnace, going to your first shot, making that shot, uh, part coming out of the mold, temperature of that mold, everything needs to be linked to a recipe and everything needs to communicate real time. And you should have parameter for every casted part. Best of my suppliers, any part I pick up, I send them the QR code, they can tell me the exact casting parameters of that part. They can tell me how it was casted, what was the conditions. And this helps them because when we, let's say, have shrinkage porosity or porosity issues or, say, let's say, quality concerns, they can go back to the to their parameters. They can see exactly what changed, what was the issue on the machine, and they can avoid that in future because there's always be going to be a later change. There's always going to be a further change. So that's what, in my opinion, it looks like. It's not just buying a system off the shelf. It's about integrating your process making sure that the process is controlled, uh, all the parameters are recorded, uh, there's a proper recipe that is logged down uh, during development, during the first shot that is made, and then improved from there. But Industry 4.0 is definitely not just buying the software, hi, I have Industry 4.0, hey, there you go, you can audit this. It is never going to be the case. It's always going to be continuous follow-up on the process, managing your process parameters digitally, making sure there's a casting QR code that is going into machining. You know the exact nest it's been machined. You know the exact tools that was chained, the tool that drilled that part, what was the tool life on that tool. Everything needs to be there on every part because we want to make sure that these parts, because castings are mostly structural, the one that make money, definitely. The structural castings, if they're failing in the field, that's a very big recall. That's a vehicle off-road event. And definitely, I'm not sure about the other OEMs, but we take it very, very seriously. Every product is made to last for a long time, to be very mm. structurally mm. strong and the safest car in the world. So our approach is definitely different. It might not resound with the with the industry, but definitely we want to make sure every part is meticulously managed by the supplier because it's not just, it might be the other part for the supplier, but for us, it's going to a customer vehicle. I mean, all that's great, and I do agree. But but have you sneaked around the corner that because there's an interesting development? If you if you push some machine learning into what you just said, we we use that actually mm-hmm. a little bit of conversion from our side. But but we have a, a total control of what we're doing when we do semi-solid casting because we have to by uh, several reasons. But when you start to put machine learning into this and a nice mm-hmm. vision system, 
There's yeah. some developments that indicates that you can take the learning from a previous part yeah. and, and actually do this. But you need machine learning because all of a sudden you, you don't have the shot profile only. Uh, you also have all the other things. Who is actually running the machine? What is the humidity? What is the exact spec of, of the alloy? Uh, and then you have the electronic system with you, you know, the... The, the biscuit, the blah, 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 and all that, hammer spray system, and what is the te two temperature? Because you'll find combinations that are pretty strange, but leads up to a defect. And, and yeah. if you start to, to run this with machine learning back and forth, after five years, you can probably, probably with some probability, say that, okay, this is the combination. We don't understand why, but it should be Lars running the machine, and it should be a sunny day if I make a joke yeah. of it. And then I will have perfect parts without porosity. It, it yeah, is, but you find strange things if you start to look yeah. around the corner in this. Yeah, I would say in my experience in die casting, every shot is a different shot. You can never have yeah. two same shots. Uh, like you said, there's several parameters interacting with the tool, interacting with the molten metal. Uh, there's a lot going on, but we want to make sure at least we are doing the bare minimum to control the major, major points out there. A basic temperature difference, if your tool is too cold or if your uh, the short sleeve temperature of the molten metal is too cold, you'll see issues. These are very big parameters that you definitely need to monitor. But I understand for chasing that last 10% of the casting scrap, definitely that's when the AI or machine learning comes in. Uh, no, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not thinking but about I, that. I'm thinking about the super big machines because Ah, okay. Here, here it comes. They are so freaking expensive to run, and and everybody's speaking about that. But the worst thing is when they fluke, you stop the car assembly line, and that's an even bigger cost. And and yeah. and and to have a system that generates, let's say, sixty shots an hour, because that's the pace of your car manufacturing. Then you have to start to to really look around the corner how to actually manage the. What should I say? The, the, the quality. And, and the problem is checking the quality of a casting is actually like testing matches, like uh, burns doesn't burn, the burns mm. doesn't burn. You, you place sure. the, the burning ones in the box and you sell mm. it and the, the customer is a little bit pissed off. <laughs> so, so what I'm saying is that a small machine, a 600 ton machine somewhere in Taiwan, who gives a, if, if, if it has a quality reject of 8%, it's still cheap labor, it's still cheap parts, blah, blah, blah. It, it's good enough. But when you have a 9,000 ton machine and you have to push that battery tray, the, the, I mean, with a 600 ton machine, it's pretty easy. You got four of them, you buy a fifth one, then you're yeah. good to go. But if you have yeah. one 9,000 ton machine, you need another one just for redundance. You yeah. start to yeah. have an investment problem, a space problem. And, also, you and need people, a new production hall for that. Yeah, exactly. So, so what I'm saying is that I always claim that the, the die casting industry is under academized. There's too little people. It's just old people saying, yeah, we have to do like this because this gate has been working since 1978. So uh, go and bring me a cup of coffee. Now, and especially the computer so guys with are, that gating uh, system and everybody uses it anyway. In just yeah, small yeah. modifications, it looks like a whale, you know, a whale tail. Okay, sure, yeah, great. But but my, my so so what I'm saying is that I think we have super interesting development when it comes to industry 4.0. But it's not about what we muppets in the casting industry think. It is actually about risk mitigation and keeping that car line up. And it will be about all the factors, not only what we see from our electronica cupboard, because that does, that gives you 50% of it. And you have to look into the future because otherwise you have a tool change and then you have, yeah, I'm going to try my new tool for two weeks. Yeah, but during that two weeks, I'm supposed to make 10,000 cars. Yeah.
You see what I'm getting at? So, so yeah, yeah, they they need to pick it up. I mean, in my experience, from what I've seen, definitely bigger or smaller casting machine. Uh, I would say the scale of problems get bigger as you go to higher tonnage. Uh, I know that there was just a twelve thousand ton machine that was commissioned at a Chinese OEM, and they had a picture where they had. 250 castings right in front of that one machine, one 12,000 ton machine. So uh, it's it's pretty hard to believe that they tested all of that with commissioning that uh, that machine. But again, the systems are improving. Like the, these machines now are coming with the systems that need bare minimum management uh, for for these high uh, high tonnage castings and uh, high demand castings. Because again, the it's got to be high volume. That's the reason the company invested in that big casting machine. Mm. Uh, it has to volume. In order to yield high volumes, OE has to be good. For the OE to be good, you need to make sure you build a perfect recipe and just run that. Do not deviate. The spray, every spray nozzle has to spray in the designated area. They cannot. It has to work like an airplane. Every everything needs to have a backup. If some, if a nozzle fails, you have to monitor everything. I think that's where the industry is heading, and that's where like core industry 4.0 is, and that's how 5.0 will be progressing towards uh, towards mm. machine learning towards neural networks, learning all these parameters, and even a slightest change, even a nozzle is blocked, the machine would know that the nozzle is blocked, this area is underheated, you'll see shrinkage porosity, you'll see underfill in that area. So uh, that's where the, I think the supplier should definitely work towards progressing towards industry. Uh, so so a, a slider I was working with, it was what, eight tons, and it had some uh, roughly 200 jet coolings in it. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, and, and, and of course, I start to think: how, how do we actually manage to optimize this? And doing that without machine learning must and a, a good heat camera and some software engineers must be possible. Yeah. You, you need you need another tool in the toolbox to. I mean, you cannot have the old guy saying, "Yeah, but you know, the left corner is a little bit cold there. That's why it's squeaking." <laughs> it doesn't work that way. You have to have the computer science guys walking into our dairy industry and start to mm -hmm. do things. It's easy for me yeah. because my oldest son is machine learning, so I, I kind of get a lecture if I want every, any time a day. But <laughs> I, I start to realize what he's talking about, and I see the the progress we we all are doing, and and that leads me into the big machines. We're not talking about your mega casting now, so take it easy. But you see the 12,000 ton, uh, I actually hear rumors about the even bigger ones, and you have patents from a guy from California about you know casting the whole week and blah, blah, blah. But you, you can look at this in two ways. Either it is a new Babylon's tower. It's, it's just growing too big. You cannot transport the thing. I hear all these arguments all the time. Or it's like uh, in, in, uh, in 1920 when everybody was trying to, to, to cast the biggest gun. That was actually yeah. a competition here, and, and I think uh, Tyson Krupp won, you know, but they kind of moved the gun and could shoot one shot and then it was done. But I don't know. I, I, I think it's here to stay, you know. I think it's oh, IKEA well. in going mm. into cars. It's a, it's a bill in oh. the bookshelf, you know, it's a flat package, you, you inflate your car. It's going this way and, and yeah. we had to cope with it. There, there's no way around it. I don't know how you feel about it, but the, yeah, that's a, that's a good yeah. analogy. It has to be Lego system. If you look at look at the new manufacturing system, it has to be a Lego process. You have this part, you have this part, bring it together, boom, it's done. That's like a time. You cannot be spending time with robots like stamping, building the stampings, getting the parts together, getting the sub-assemblies together. There's a lot of time. You use that time and engineering resource to design a part that is more likely to cover all those parts and have less cycle time, bring you more money, less cycle time, more money. It's always the case. 
but simplify the manufacturing process. You have to le manage less suppliers. You have to manage less value streams, less logistic problems, mm. less uh, less mm. problems in COVID, another COVID, another pandemic. So that's that's where the industry is heading towards. And yeah. I think one should adapt. When you go into industry 4.0 and you see um, the car, the, all the manufacturing is more Lego style. Do we need different supervision systems to really know what's going to be? Because usually after temperature sensors, which are built in the tool or the cooling channels, is it something like thermal cameras yeah, the with every is, shot and more can generating more and different data than we produce yeah. producing now? I would say, in, in my opinion, definitely capturing all of this. So as of now, many casting machines already have, let's say, the shot profile will always be there. But you need to connect that shot profile with other parameters that are not known. What is the short sleeve temperature? What is the, the mold temperature? Was the mold heated properly uh, when the spray came on? What, what was the, how much of a diarealization did you put? What was the smoke? I mean, I can walk into a die casting shop and smell that that burning diarealization and tell, hey, this is not a good supplier. There's too much uh, diarealization that they're spraying. It's not it's not good practice. And uh, all of these things, like you, you need to monitor to, to make these conclusions, right? So I think uh, definitely everyone is monitoring it, but you have to monitor the collective cloud and have everything interact with each other. For that, you can have thermal cameras, but you need to know the reading of that thermal camera compared to the, the furnace holding furnace temperature that okay i i had the holding furnace at this temperature but when when the when the when the molten metal went into the casting cavity the temperature delta was far more than i anticipated in my original recipe or in my simulation so that that is the basic of 4.0 yeah but that's why i'm saying that this is impossible to do without pretty oh, advanced system and machine learning because Otherwise, you have this silo of thinking. You have the tool manager and you have the lubrication manager. You have the alloy manager. <laughs> and, and there you go. And, and you're, you're squeezing out, just for yeah. instance, a mega casting. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. okay, mm, we don't get the elongation of the left corner. And, and there, there the fight starts, you know. And, and whilst yeah. there's a production guy in the car assembly line that says, mm, you know, I got 60 cars an hour. So could you please yeah. stop discussing and fiddling around mm. and give me the parts? You, you have yeah, to, I, you have to pour some, some processor. Yeah power of this but that's when these guys need to talk to each other that's why the lubrication manager needs to talk to the production manager and yeah. explain him hey this is why the line stop and talk to each other and discuss those parameters i have suppliers that are doing it today without any machine learning i mean they're going towards machine learning they're monitoring the trends mm -hmm. the trends developing the neural networks to kind of understand those trends but you don't really need that level of sophistication you need the basic foundation because you need to have a foundation to build machine learning on top I of it. I agree. I agree. But yeah. I think the time is much shorter to reach to this system true, true. that people. But, but because here comes my thing. If if you look at the casting process, if the deviation, the tool temperature, for example, that's five shots, right? Then you have a trend somewhere. You have to have a system that says, "Dear owner, I see a trend in your mega casting. The three shots, we start to have a deviation. So I am adjusting 175 of my 200 jet coolers already. Mm -hmm. That predicts that if I go this way with this trend line on all these factors, mm -hmm. I will have a bad casting in three shots. That's what you have to reach. You have to look around the corner and say, okay, I'm doing something. Then you cannot have, you know, guys that know what they're talking about that uh, turning a knob somewhere because yeah now it looks a little bit cranky i don't like the sound that it's too much fire coming out of a short sleeve when i pour my metal these days are over yep. and we have to reach okay. here let me make a prediction 2026 this has to be in place working 
And especially yeah. you have yeah. to lock yeah. down your machines that these people cannot change anything because they think, oh, it that part we did 20 years ago, when we changed that and had fire there, it worked. You have to lock it down that they can't yeah. influence or, your casting. Yeah, you have the correlation and then you have causalitet, as we say in Sweden, and, and people mix up these two all the time. I mean, it's <laughs> like going to the university. If I don't study, I, I fail my exam. Yeah, okay. Why, why didn't you study? I mean, it's 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 an impossible discussion, and and you have to tear this down. You have to pivot out of this situation and say, we need a new tool. We need some more machine learning because 2026. I bet you this has to work because otherwise we start to to lose produced cars in a pace that is forget about the hourly rate of your 9,000 ton machine or 12,000 ton machine or buy whatever machine you like. It will be too costly. It's a factor 50 on that machine hourly rate cost. And people don't yeah. get this. And then they say, walk into me at Eurogas. I, I bet you this will happen in January. <laughs> I say, yeah, we heard that Tesla is doing that, but they, they will never be. They, yeah, no, it's just too much flash, you know, and they're, they're burning the short sleeves. And again, it would be a Porsche out there if I had one euro for each guy coming in and saying something like that. Oh An electrical God. Taycan then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or maybe two Teslas, I don't know. Yeah. Talks, talks, they're just about mega casting. They're just envy. <laughs> hey, Pranay, they're, they're just envy of you working with Tesla, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's why I cannot discuss uh, my mega casting days. I worked on that. Yeah, well, one odd question, however, Pranay. Are you living your dream now in, in uh, Tesla? Is it the best uh, job you had? Absolutely, absolutely. Feel challenged every day, uh, work with an amazing team, work for an amazing management, work for an amazing boss, chasing a goal. Uh, I no complaints. Yes, congrats. <laughs> congrats. <laughs> yeah, couldn't be better. You know, I, my history is that 1998, I heard a presentation about semi-solid casting, and, and then I was addicted. Uh, good oh. thing I wasn't addicted to alcohol or something else. But <laughs> and, and you know, I, I used to explain to people that I had to work as a manager for 12 years to, to pay my bills. But uh, mm. heart, heart and soul, I'm a semi-solid guy, and now finally yeah. I'm in the center where it's happening. And I, I agree with you; it's, it's a different job, but it's so amazing to see sit there and. I actually see the parts evolve and uh, getting the things out there. In your case, it's the vehicles and the development. It's um, it's the thrill. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's also working with the people. I think uh, a lot of uh, people who are very motivated, they also motivate you. I mean, you learn a lot yeah. from them. If you get you're open-minded. Yeah. You I get think it's, a, it's a flyway going your way. And also, yeah, yeah. it's a devil spiral. If you're in a cozy job, nothing's going to change. You will bore out. Yeah. Absolutely. You can always be in your cocoon. I can stand there. Oh, no, I have a bachelor's and a master's. No one tells me anything. I know everything. It's not going to take you anywhere in your life or your career. A lot of people need to understand that. So yeah. but who am I to go? <laughs> <laughs> we can only guess, but apparently we're guessing pretty good at this thing, right? <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Okay. So, uh, anything um, else to talk about today? I think it was a wonderful discussion. I think we're pretty good. Yeah, I think also uh, there's so many different topics we touched and so many things to take from. And also if you're at a foundry now and start pick out which is the lowest hanging fruits and start a change process, you will have an amazing time in one year. So I only can recommend listen to it twice, three times, send it to, to your CEO, send it to your board, start to change something and you will have a great time. That's my takeaway from that gold nugget. 
Yeah, and again, thank you, Pranay. It's very, very nice talking to you, and hope that we can uh, continue this over a beer somewhere. Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for your time, guys. Really enjoyed yeah. the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Have a good one. Thanks. Yeah, the same. Thank you. Thank you for being right. here, and Bye. then goodbye. See you in the next Gold Nugget. Bye. Yeah. Bye.